Matthew chapter 18. Jesus has come to earth. He has preached the gospel. He has been healing people. And he is rejected by the leadership. He understands that for the most part, the people are there for the show. And he gets narrow and narrow on his challenge to them. And now he has separated his disciples because he's going to prepare them to be able to take the gospel to the world. And so he's separated from them. He's taken them clear up to uh, the north, away from Jewish influence. And he's taking time to teach them. This is such an important passage. The message entitled, The Priorities of Ministry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, in giving us the word and also, Lord, the Holy Spirit. So I pray that you give us understanding today. Apply it to our hearts, Lord, that we would be a people that's known by our love for people and by a forgiving spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter has taken the Lord apart when the Lord said, I'm going to go and I'm going to die. And then I'll rise again on the third day. He is, Dr. Bogman says, been taken. Peter grabbed him by the collars and pulled him aside and said, this is not going to happen. Because they were very focused on, look at the success. Look at the success. Look what's going on. The people are coming. You can raise the dead. You can feed. You can be the king. Even the disciples were off track. Jerusalem Israel did not think they needed a king and a savior. They just wanted a political ruler to get rid of Rome so their life could be peaceful. That's kind of like a lot of us as Christians. If we could just have a good politics so we can be comfortable. And the Bible does say pray for our, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, pray for our leaders that we might have peace, that we can share the gospel. The problem is, Christians in America are not sharing the gospel anymore. Somehow they're expecting people to show up to a, an event and get saved, but they're not personally sharing the gospel. And so they want peace. It, it, it's amazing to me that you can go in the south and there'll be cities filled with megachurches, and they still have the politics that they have. Well, the disciples were like that. They just wanted to have their life be comfortable, and they were focused on who's going to be, who's going to get those good choice political offices. So they asked the Lord, they came to Jesus, and they said, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember, this is going to go further. This isn't heal the whole thing, because later, James and John are going to say, you know what, he's not, he's not listening to us, mom. Would you go ask him if we could, you know, one on the right, one on the left? We don't care which. Rest of the disciples get angry at them for not thinking of that themselves. But Jesus just deflects and takes them to what is important in ministry. Who's greatest? What can we do that we can be in charge? You know, in uh, 1 Timothy 3.1, when it's going to give the um, requirements for an elder and those character traits of an elder, the first verse says, 
It is a trustworthy statement that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Not a fine position that he desires to have, a fine work that he desires to do. And that's what Jesus does here. He says, well, first of all, he said, you, you guys are taking too much on yourself, too much pride. You're looking for position. He has to tell them again just before he dies. The Gentiles rule like this. Whoever can claw themselves their way to the top and be in charge, that's where the power is. He says, you become a servant. That's the kingdom of God. He's turning this whole idea of the kingdom upside down. You want to be a leader? Serve. Because that's what Jesus did. The king of the universe, the creator of the world and all the universe, came to serve. He says, truly I say to you, he called a child over himself and set him, uh, set him before them. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty serious. You need to be changed to be like a child before you can become a part of the kingdom of heaven. In his Sermon on the Mount, he said, Narrow is the way, and straight is the gate, hard is the gate, and few there be that find it. Why? Because you don't come with your great abilities. You come on your knees. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. An unspoiled child has the characteristics that make for humility, trust, dependence, the desire to make others happy, and an absence of boasting or selfish desire to be the greatest of all. That's just the simple heart of a child. Not on every child. Proverbs 20, verse 11 said, Even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure or whether it be light. But there's this child. Look at the next verse. Whoever then humbles himself as this child. The one he was talking about right there. This child. Why? Because Jesus called this child, he just came. Children are different. But this child, can you imagine this child in heaven? This child. Jesus just said, I don't know if it was one of just a child that was with the crowd or maybe one of the disciples' children. Come here, son. And he just came happily. You have to become like this child who will just come at the Savior's call and just do what he asks you to do. I know it's very hard sometimes for seminary students because you guys have put so much into your education. And so your first thought is, where's my job, right? And the callous Paul Martin says, do something. What does that mean, do something? Just means God loves you. It's not as important what other people think or whoever notices you, but God notices you. He has saved you for a purpose. He saved you on purpose for a purpose. He's gifted you that purpose, and he's going to put there if you're just available to listen to him. Just listen. God is more excited about you finding his will for your life than you are. 
But sometimes we get so distracted because nobody's noticing me. Well, if they just notice my great abilities, why I should just be there. And understand that leading is simply serving. That's all it is, is serving. Become like this child. And whoever receives one such child of my name receives me. You know what Jesus is saying? Children's ministry is a priority. In the priorities of ministry, children's ministry is number one in Jesus' mind. So often they're the afterthought. They are in every culture. In our culture, babies now have to somehow survive to get outside the, bio, uh, the hospital before they're even considered to be human beings. I don't understand how a whole culture can be screaming for the death of their children. It's unnatural, but you know what happens? When a nation turns its back on God, he gives them over to moros thinking, to reprobate thinking, and they do things that aren't even natural. Kill their babies. Well, there's not convenient time for me. Jesus said, no, these children, they're the priority. You know, in our church, most families look at their children as the priority. That's such a blessing. And in this church, we don't look at children as a liability. We look at them as the treasure. Charles Spurgeon said about Proverbs 22, 6, raise up a child the way he should go. And he was old, he kept going that way. And he made this statement in his commentary. Listen, the children don't belong to you. They don't belong to the state. They belong to God. You are simply a steward. How are you doing? How are you doing with God's property? Very precious. Very precious. That's why when we look at the challenge we face today as a church with the need for more Sunday school space, well, we've got chapel space. We could just do another service. And one of our elders, Terry Diltz, challenged us in one of our meetings. He said, fellas, I'm so blessed when I see all the kids coming in on Sunday morning. We need to get that building built. We need to be praying what God wants to do. But Jesus thought children were a priority. Some of you have heard you're praying for my mom. She's right there at death's door. And as we were singing these songs this morning, I'm thinking my mom is just about to step into those songs. She's just about there just to see heaven open eyes and, and there's the Lord sitting on his throne, right? Today, Christy and I are leaving to go be by her bedside. And uh, if the Lord takes before we get there, that's okay. God got his timing. But you know, she's gathered around by all of her children and many of her grandchildren. Do you know why? Because children were a priority to my mom. Children are a treasure. Some of you, you know, you're getting to that place that you're young enough and you're going to get married. And you say, well, let's put children off for a while. That's fine. You know, you do as God directs you. But I want to tell you something. They're not a liability. So don't ever think, well, we can't afford them yet. You'll never be able to afford them. But your father in heaven is rich. And he can afford them. And growing up in a home where it's about faith and you live faith and you experience grace and then you get to see God provide personally, oh, that's something. 
But see, a child just that, that is like that, that Jesus born this child that just comes when Jesus calls and stands there smiling at the disciples who would turn children away because we've got important people to minister to. If only the Pharisees and Sadducees would get them on our side, we'll have a political movement. And Jesus said, no, no. It's about the children. It's about the children. Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I want to tell you something. Jesus is serious about his kids. How can we cause a child to stumble? By the things we do to them and the example we live before them. Scientists have said that you have to teach a child to be an atheist. And we can also teach a Christian child to be an idolater by the things that we idolize in our life. I think one of the biggest challenges for you moms and dads today in America is sports. You better keep that in its right perspective. And the reason it's such a challenge is because we, we, we have... All these organizations, sports is where it's at because it's character development, you know. I've noticed this last year on the radio in Laramie about every minute or so you get your kids in high school sports. Why? Because that's the only thing left where they say out of bounds, right and wrong. There's nothing else that's wrong. Can't say that. Politically incorrect. So get your kids in sports. It's our last hope. And for years, it's been the, you know, the character, the development. Well, sports will display character, but it also began an idol. Because with professional sports and the goal of getting there, pretty soon we want our kids to get everything they can out of life. And so we're skipping this and doing that. So our kids grow up and they show up on Sunday, but hey, the main thing is sports. And it doesn't matter what you tell them. I had a dad a while ago say, no, 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 because his, his life, they run all over the place for kids this big doing basketball. They're from Laramie. They're not going to play pro basketball if they're from Laramie, probably. If you talk to recruiters, most recruiting goes on in big cities where they have a lot of population and a lot more people are playing and they have all this other stuff going on. But even if, this is Jesus' question from, verse, from chapter 16, even if... Your child gains the whole world and gets to play as a pro and have all the benefits and get you a new house and loses his soul. Is that a benefit? Is that a benefit? And our world is full of children that have been offended. And see, offend just means cause to stumble. Because of angry fathers and angry mothers. And they grow up in church and, and at church they act real good, but but the kids know, buddy, don't step out of line because it's coming. And yet God has put in children such resilience. And listen, there are no perfect parents, there aren't. And when you see things getting off track. You may think, and this is the world's philosophy, well, don't admit you're wrong because then your kids will know and when you have something important to say, they won't follow you. No, no. You get down on your knees and you look in your son's or your daughter's eyes and you say, you know, dad, mom, we sinned against you. 
We messed up. We accused you of something that wasn't true. We we're too hard. Will you forgive us? Because Jesus is pretty serious about how we take care of our children. And we as adults need to understand the precious treasure that God has entrusted us with and understand we're not perfect. So this asking for forgiveness, not saying I'm sorry, they know you're sorry. They live with you, right? Because I just told God I was sorry. He already knows that. But naming the offense, this is basic to Christianity. And will you forgive me of that? Humility, see? It's not hard for a child. It gets hard as we're adults. It's hard. That's why Jesus said it's almost impossible for a rich man to get saved because he's got all that proof in the world that he's right. And all the money and the power takes supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to bring somebody to the place they say, Lord, I have nothing to offer. Nothing to offer. I'm a sinner lost. Please save me. Half of this chapter is devoted to children. Woe to the world because of his stumbling blocks. It's inevitable the stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. This is so serious, he said. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away from you. It's better for you to enter the crippled, crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Throw it away from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Listen to this. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who's in heaven. Oh, man. You just think about that for a minute. The preciousness of one of your, every single one of us as children of God have a guardian angel. Dr. Bookman's always saying, and mine often has to sit down and take a breath. Close one. But the idea that those angels report in, they've got an ear to God. We need to be kind, tender hearted towards our children. Oh, you have to be firm. You have to, say, you have to love them enough to say, no, that's wrong. And if you continue that action, I'm going to discipline you because I love you, not because it make me angry. Because I love you. Now, I think I'd be a lot better dad at 65 than I was at 30, 25, but probably not. I make a better grandpa at this age. My daughter-in-law, Kat, told me with left Harrison with me. Now, when he's naughty, you spank him. I said, nope, nope, not going to happen. That job is over for me. One thing Harrison's going to know and all my grandkids are going to know, nobody in this whole world will ever treat them better than their grandpa does. So that's not necessarily good for kids that need correction, right? No, young people, Charles Spurgeon said, that have children, that's the best. God intended that. Because you're going places. You know, some of you get on this thing where the kids have to have a certain bedtime every day no matter what. So church, anything that happens at night, forget that. We can't do that because they got to be in bed by 7.30. You know, our boys grew up in a pile on everybody else's floor. We'd be having fellowship and they'd just fall over and then I'd pick them up, haul them to the car. The ones that could walk, wake them up. They stumble drunkenly to the car. 
And Christy would say, hey, carry them. Say, got legs. I got these two. And they grew up anyway. They grew up anyway. You're doing things. You're motivated. You're getting things done. You require things of them. That's good, but love them. Because I want to tell you something. This time goes too quickly. And your influence is over. And you pray. And you love them. But you have this very short time to challenge them to rock the world. Verse 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine in the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. It is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. He, all of these great themes in Scripture, and he's telling you, it's about children. We ought to be extending and stretching out and making sure, listen, I talk to a lot of guys that look at a ministry, and I say, why don't you uh, try preaching the kids? <laughs> the kids. <sighs> I need to be on Sunday morning. <sighs> I'm over an adult person. Well, listen, if you can't explain it to kids, adults won't get it either. St. Nicholas, the real one, you know, not Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, his whole goal in life was to preach the gospel as clearly and as simply as you could so that a child could understand. That's ministry. That's what Jesus said. So we have gone through these things, and and high-minded people that are smarter than I have said, well, we don't really need Sunday school anymore, and we've read their books. Because, you know, that takes the pressure off parents to disciple their own children, and I see that. That, that. That's possible. But you know what? There's little kids that don't have Christian parents that we ought to be reaching out to. I am so thankful for our ministry this last couple of weeks of FCA. For five bucks. And if they didn't have five bucks, they could just come in and we fed them two meals and they ministered the gospel and they gave them some instruction on sports, but they ministered the gospel. And poor kids on the west side of town would come riding by on their bikes and they grab and say, hey, you ought to come to camp. Oh, well, let me check my mom. So they ride home, come back. And got to minister the gospel. And we had Spanish speakers there, so we got to minister to moms and dads and little kids that didn't even speak English well. What a blessing. That's a priority. We ought to be putting money into that stuff. Why? Because Jesus says it's important. We talk about the 90 and 9. We always talk about this adult has gone astray. He says, it's not God's will that one little one be lost. Sunday school ministries... Discipleship ministries, youth ministries are important to the heart of Jesus. Then he gets to the second part. You got ministry of children, and then we have the ministry of confrontation. That's not a fun ministry. And most churches just don't do it. They just don't do it. Well, you know, 
We don't want to make people feel bad. Mostly we're concerned about us. That's why we don't confront. Because we're concerned, well, we want people to like us. We like to be liked and we hate to be hated. At least we like to be appreciated. So don't get involved in confrontation. That's for the elders. And yet the Bible's pretty clear. First Thessalonians chapter 5. It says you, as you appreciate, one way to appreciate those that, that lead and labor among you is tell your neighbor to get in step. Best discipleship Best church discipline is when your brother who loves you right next to you says, you need to cut that out, man. What do you mean? You know what I'm talking about. You just haven't been there. Well, you judging me? No, I'm your brother. I'm confronting you. Look what he says. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listened to you, you've gained your brother. Ends. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't matter what the, the, the sin was. He said, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, you may need to do some more accountability or some more loving on him, time in the word, making, getting the scripture in. But he says, you've gained your brother. Over. Discipline over. He says, but if he does not listen to you, take one or more with you, so that by the mouth or two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, how did Jesus say to treat publicans and sinners? That's a tax collector. He said, if you only greet your brothers and you don't greet unsaved people, then how are you any different than the world? No, you still love them. But Paul's pretty serious about the fact, 1 Corinthians 5, you separate from them. You don't fellowship. You love them. You say, I'm praying for you. No, we're not getting together anymore. And you can't be a part of the church anymore. And you have that example in 1 Thessalonians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says, you put him out. So they put him out. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, now take him back. He's repented. And if you don't, he's going to be overcome because there's forgiveness when there's repentance. Even if they've gone all the way through church discipline, there's still restoration. That's the whole point of church discipline is restoration. There's only excommunication from fellowship when there's refusal to repent. It's not like, oh, they said that sin. We can't associate them anymore. Listen, we're all sinners. And before God, there are different consequences for sin, but it's all sin in God's eyes. He goes on to say, verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, he's not saying that here on earth, we're bending heaven's will to us. It's something that the Pharisees, as they taught, or the, the scribes they taught, would, would use this saying. The rabbis sometimes spoke of a principle of actions being bound in heaven or loosed in heaven to indicate respectively that it was forbidden or permitted in light of God's revealed word. In other words, in discipline, when we're confronting people in sin, it's got to be about the scripture, not about your preferences. The scripture. And when you walk and you discipline, you confront according to the scripture, God blesses that. God blesses it. And he's going on to talk about, again, verse 19, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. Now listen, Jesus is everywhere anyway. You don't have to have a party with two people in order for Jesus to be there because the Holy Spirit is in all of us, right? 
So what's he talking about? He's still talking about the ministry of confrontation, how serious it is, and how we ought to be praying about this. Everything by prayer. Everything by prayer and looking at the word of God. So Peter comes, and his question is our question. So, Lord, okay, so somebody sins. How many times do I have to forgive him? And he reaches way out there and says, seven times? He thinks he's really going there. I think he thinks the Lord's going to say, oh, no, two couple times is good. You know, uh, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Two's good. But he's reaching way out there to say, how about seven the lord says no 70 times seven other passage says in a day it's like what 490 times forgiving a brother what's he saying he's saying you forgive others as long as god keeps forgiving you that amazing first john chapter one verse eight if you say you have no sin you are lying you're lying. The proof of a believer's true relationship to Christ is we're always confessing our sin, right? The older you get, the more little things bother you because you're walking closer and closer to the Lord and things that didn't used to, that's not a big deal. Now it's like, no, no, I have to get that right. I have to deal with that. Then you, Jesus finishes this chapter with this amazing, amazing story of great forgiveness. And it's so much like we as believers. I see this all the time in marriage counseling. Get to the end. Well, Jesus wouldn't have me forgive that. Really? Doesn't seem to line with scripture. It's very easy for us to say and make up a Jesus in our mind like false religions do and then just kind of put it in there. It's like, no, here's what Jesus said about forgiveness. He said there was a fella who owed the king an unpayable amount, millions I don't know who, why the king kept giving him money, but he owed him millions. It looked like a, it just couldn't fail. This is a bit, it couldn't fail. And so he's getting ready to be thrown into the debtor's prison with his family. And he comes and lays down before the king and weeps. The king, I'm sorry, I, just give me time. And the king had mercy on him and he forgave him everything. You think that guy would be just so full of forgiveness that he would just want to forgive everyone. But no. He went out, he found a friend that owed him the equivalent of 20 bucks. And he took him by the throat. Listen, I was in front of the king and people like you owed money and that's why I was there. Forgot all about the forgiveness. Forgot all about it. And he said, give me time, just like he'd asked from the king. Give me time, 20 bucks, I'll get it to you. Nope, you're going to debtor's prison. And he threw him in debtor's prison. And the servants that had observed the man who was forgiven the unpayable amount went and told the king. The king was not happy. Verse 31. Verse 32, then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? 
And his Lord was moved with anger and handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you. Each one of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. That's serious. That's serious, isn't it? What is he saying? He's saying forgiveness is just a part of being a believer. Because you've been forgiven. How can you hold a grudge? How can you hold bitterness when you've been forgiven until you lose sight of your own debt that was forgiven you? What are you guilty of? Every believer is guilty of the death of the only begotten Son of God. You say, well, no way. Yeah. Because Jesus died for you even if you were the only one that would ever have accepted him. He died for you. And he forgave that debt full and free. The Bible says that he removes your sin as far as the east and from the west. He buries in the deepest sea. And here's a God thing. He says, I remember it no more. We remember. But he doesn't. So how can we hold bitterness against anybody else? How can we do that? Peter? 490 times. It's just who you are as a believer in Christ. Because you've been forgiven, you just keep forgiving because God never stops forgiving you. Do you have that forgiveness today? Do you have that peace with the Creator that if you should die today, you'll spend eternity with Him because Jesus paid it all? Your sin is under the blood. You've received the great gift of the gospel. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this amazing chapter that really puts ministry in perspective. It's about being humble like a child and loving like a child and trusting Jesus just to do what he tells you to do and to do everything we can to reach every child we can and loving our brothers enough to confront them and then forgiving one another graciously and lavishly because you've poured that forgiveness out on us. Oh, Lord, we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.